Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Sandra Singlow is a writer and performer. She's the author of seven books, including her most recent work, The Mad Woman and the Roomba, a New York Times new and noteworthy book. She is also the host of The Lowdown on Science, a one-minute science-oriented show. But I know of Sandra's work mostly from her many wonderful appearances on the radio show This American Life. Sandra, welcome to The Filter. Well, I'm happy to be here on this fine, whatever, very warm day somewhere in August. (laughs) It's uh, great to have you here on this very fine day in August. So the topic of our conversation is a book by Paul Fussell called Class, A Guide Through the American Status System. It was first published in 1983 and reviewed by you in 2009. So this is not a new topic, but I don't think it's any less relevant now than it was at either of those times, in part because it's still such a powerful way to view the world. I want to begin our discussion with a quote from your review in the Atlantic magazine, which might as well have been describing my own experience reading that book. (laughs) I think it touches on how impactful that book can be, both for better and perhaps for worse. So you write, the experience of reading and rereading class is akin to wiping goggles one didn't know were fogged. Fussell's methodology settles in the brain like a virus. One soon cannot stop nanocategorizing one's world. Yes, very true. Very true. And it was in 1983. So even when I wrote about it in 2009, it was already 25 years old. So yes, but it's an it's a evergreen. So I wonder if you have that same experience that there are times when you wish you could refog that goggle and, and go back to where you didn't notice certain things. Well, it's like, the, the listeners will not be able to see where we are. You are in your padded closet booth, and I'm actually in my living room, which has tropes of all different ridiculous kinds of, of you know, it was the snapshot. There's the chair there. My chairs I got for $7 from a yard sale from Coco's Family Restaurant. Um, and then here's my prize is the Costco massage chair, which says I'm completely below low class. It's a leatherette, Barca lounger style massage chair that grips the butt. And I got it at Costco because I sat in it. I go, oh, I have to have this. And I don't care what people think. And it's literally in my living room. So if Paul Fussell were in my house, he would just have a field day with what's going on here. Even though it's a, it's a craftsman's the 1906. So, you know, it could be kind of a classy thing. And we have in the next room, the, I don't know if you remember, of course, we'll go into detail. When you take the test at the end, the living room test, and if you have an orient carpet and it's new points are taken off it has to be threadbare because it's got to be old family old money so we have one that's actually the property of my wasp partner so I have I'm partnered with a downwardly mobile wasp um, from Colombia early 80s all those dudes went into Japanese horticulture and uh, you know, exotic statuary, erotic statuary, or so they all went into useless things and collected the matchbooks 
and did all the stuff that those high wasps were doing, except what's happened is these families have run out of money because the men didn't do, when they stopped being CEOs of mattress companies, they stopped doing anything useful. But they can barbecue. Right. That is... (laughs) That does have a certain use, actually, that idea of usefulness is something I wanted to get into because I think it's one of the things that has remained the same over time here in the categorizations. But maybe we should back up for those who haven't read the book and give an overview. So Fussell breaks up the world into a number of classes. He goes from the very top, the top out of sight folks, the people who are behind gated fences on estates that you reach with winding driveways, the folks you don't hear or see very often, though I think maybe those people are more visible now than they used to be, down to bottom out-of-sight folks who are in institutions or jails or homeless on the street who you don't really notice. And in between there, he's got some range in the middle class from upper middle to middle middle down to lower middle class. And then three levels that he calls proles and then destitute the bottom out of sight folks I mentioned. And the insight that he had, the main one, that we don't necessarily think about very often until we read this book or tune into it, is that despite what anyone might say or argue, there is most definitely a class system in America. Yes. And for those hearing it for the first time, it is a very, it's a funny book. It's jolly. It Again, it's from 1983, it's the 80s. So yeah, it is the world of white people. And I, I think the only color is like the mafia. It's kind of like the, the people of color are the mafia. So it just really has to be read through that particular lens. Um, and then and to not put too fine a point on it, you know, it, it's basically three classes, upper class, middle class, and prole. And the example of the upper class would be, um, you know, upper classes drink scotch on the rocks in a tumbler decorated with sailboats and say, grandfather died. Middle say, martuni and grandma passed away. Proles drink domestic beer and say, uncle was taken to Jesus. So again, it's kind of like it's trailer trash versus the high waspies the Kennedy asks something, and then the middles are all the people in the middle that, you know, shop at Target. And But I, I think that he loved the anxiety of the middle, that even certain kind of liquor ads were aimed at the middle. I, I don't know if it was Dewar Scotch or which one it was, but it's kind of like the ones in the middle are the ones he has the most fun with because of the class anxiety. And that even in The New Yorker, there was a certain kind of fisherman's hat that was... <laughs> that that you know that you if you go well it's in the New York I need to buy that hat so I like as opposed to you know let's say the upper class that did not care and I think the upper class is and, and it is just really a wasp thing of people who are they wear a certain kind of whale pants and pajama pants and they they call them their fu pants it's like the uppers they don't really care so that guy is likely to drive a beater car. Because he's he doesn't care a, a, a very wealthy person, but then the the thing that I think we were all intrigued with, sort of, that gave us that when we were reading it is the X's, so the X class, right? Which was not one of the three, but in a way that he reserved a special kind of like approbation a certain way for people of the X class where they they didn't care how they were seen. They were not nervous about where they were in the hierarchy. And sort of that sort of fell to the creative class, people wearing their, you know, t- rock and roll t-shirts, etc. And they were artistic people. But of course, 
what has happened in that time when I wrote about it in 2009, and now we can talk about where we think we are now. Actually, there's a lot of the creative class became a really dominant class, and there was so ang- so much anxiety. You couldn't just be a poet in a coffee house. You had to um, have your uh, you know idea bought by you know Brian Glazer or something like that. You know, kind of like everything had to be made into a movie, and because so many people were getting really successful in creative class and making tons of money, so there's a lot of anxiety in the book. Lots of it, for sure. And that was one of the things that kind of hit close to home in some ways, including the Greek fisherman's cap. I did own one (laughs) when I was younger. And it's interesting, the X class, which shouldn't be confused with Gen X, which I'm a part of, that's his sort of opt-out class. When I read the book, I'm of that generation. And I think that that expressed itself very much in what I'd call the, oh, well, whatever, never mind attitude named after the famous Nirvana lyrics during that time period where, you know, on the one hand, you were happily opting out of the many constraints of class. And there are many of them from how you dress and act and behave. But then it went very far in the other direction in the form of such a strong lack of pretension that you almost became apathetic and there was a slacker ethos. Don't try too hard, whatever. I wonder if you, I guess you're a little bit older than me, to what extent did you feel that sort of, if you were opting out of to X class, you were also maybe buying into a certain ethos of, eh, whatever? Well, I think particularly in the pandemic quarantine, uh, you know, like there's a certain category of, I would say, of let's say 20 something slacker stoner guy who's playing his video games all day. <laughs> like, like he really doesn't care, does not care. You see them if they go to the grocery store in their uh, rubber bath sandals and cargo shorts or like whatever. I, I, I think that we have really a brand of these people really do not care. <laughs> like, And it would be that sort of person. I think at that particular time, as I kind of would muse in this piece and specifically in the 80s, you know, into the 90s of even pitching television shows. So I I would remember, and none of the shows that I ever pitched got made, but I was in that world for a while where you were going like, oh, I'm pitching it. NBC or ABC, a sitcom. You do not put on a blazer or a skirt or heels. You have to dress like they do, which is kind of torn jeans and some t-shirt. Like I remember these two young 20-something producers at ABC or, or something. They're they're in kind of these t-shirt, you know, band t-shirts or something and tennis shoes, but expensive and clean ones of some, but the only person wearing a tie is the valet parker. If you're dressing as though you have to impress, like you're dressing like really that, like that you don't care, that you don't like. And so that, yes, sort of the non-affect does become an affect. And, you know, God forbid you have a briefcase that you snap open. It just like that would be that would be absolute um, death. So. So, yeah, the non-affect became an affect for sure. It certainly did. I see that. And there's certainly an extent to which caring in general and caring what other people think about you automatically lowers you in this class system, which I think gets to the heart of why those middle classes can be so anxiety ridden, because 
you know you have to act like you don't care too much, but then at the same time, you do care. And you know you are uncertain perhaps in terms of your socioeconomic status or whatever, which I think lends to, and this was perhaps one of his observations, certainly something that I noticed, among the lower classes, things are often a lot more friendly and people are more likely to approach you and just engage you in a random conversation because they're just not worried about it. Right. Like at the grocery store, the checkout people. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. It, exactly. And those kinds of situations are a lot less loaded. Just true. There is so much that goes on in, well, in any interaction, but especially in an interaction among people who are very conscious about their own position and they want to be sure that no one mistakes them for being lower class than they are. Right. Or not even being aware that there are these different, you know, it's like at at Walmart or like, like not even being aware that there's anything really to worry about there. I mean, to a certain extent, I don't, I would let you direct the conversation. But now that I'm thinking about this, it is when we look back now, um, it is the class stuff is still kind of very much with us. Um, And I think the whole MAGA hat and the not wearing scarf and that that is so sort of easily painted in our minds and certainly with the if we're like I'm I'm a left coast democrat and my partner reads the New York Times and like so that is the media bubble and kind of the New Yorker it's like that that's the media bubble of of the upstairs bedroom and so it, it seems kind of like what was amusing in the 80s and remember that was when spy if you remember that time in American culture, things were uh, a little bit more flip and funny and sardonic. And it was were kind you of like. Did I mention Spy Magazine? Yes, exactly. Oh, fantastic. Of you knew. It. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Can you imagine? So, Spy Magazine, where they called Trump a short fingered Bulgarian, and the cover in, was Ivana Rama. Ivana, who seems like. Barbara Bush now, like, it's kind of like, oh, Yvonne, I miss you at the ski. Like, it's like, that was the, the way Spy would make fun of all that. I mean, it was just a very fast moving time. And I know I also wrote for Buzz Magazine in Los Angeles, which was in the 90s, which is a, a kind of spy-like in its way. But there was a lot more um, stuff, irreverence, you would flip things on its head. It's kind of like, we hear the rich and they're gross the Euro trash, and they're hilarious. And we spent the last night at, with them at Chateau Marmont, and we all got drunk, and snarky things were said. And I remember, like, I around that time, I think Jay McInerney, just to give you, like, a callback from so long ago. So I, like, here's Jay McInerney at the Chateau Marmont, and he's just writing about wine now. He doesn't even write novels. And kind of like, so the whole voice of this kind of, these snarky literary types that I was like a part, like poking fun, like we didn't know that, you know, 20 years later, this, this stuff would not be funny anymore, uh, that we would it just that this whole thing would go away. And when you think of the New York Observer and the Pink Pages and the LA Weekly used to be like that also. Alternative weeklies. We had alternative weeklies. That was a really strong voice of of alternative culture, which is kind of 
I wouldn't say snarky alternative culture because it's not quite yet the same as blogging and tweeting when you, you know, those alternative weeklies that young people won't even remember. Ah! <laughs> I, I think that it's interesting. You mentioned that it brings to mind that it seems to me that the type of humor you enjoy certainly is a class signifier. And right now, it seems like those in the middle and upper middle classes are just afraid of humor that you have perhaps even this young new woke class perhaps <laughs> yes. and they they're highly intolerant of certain kinds of humor maybe even of all humor i'm not so sure <laughs> maybe that's too broad a brush to paint but oh you said it i didn't matt you said it i didn't they can't yeah. stick that one on me i have a 17 year old daughter so i know a little bit about this oh my god yeah so Certainly, there's a way in which the middle and upper middle class at this moment, it seems to me, are less likely to enjoy humor. Is that something that you've experienced yeah. among your own peers? Yeah, I, I think there was a certain type of, um, you know, kind of more lighthearted with, I think, with the, the golden age of all of these magazines just going back to this time, um, you know, of course, like there was like Smart and Taxi and one called Egg that Malcolm Forbes had started and it was in a square. <laughs> so it was a square. Um, and, you know, it just, he came to a party at a motorcycle and so the border grill, just like, it, it's kind of like these were times where the, there was just a lot more flow of all of this kind of, you know, electric zingy stuff and literary magazines and Esquire was, you know, publishing fiction stuff. Now, I mean, it is the, and if you say, and you could break it down any way you want, if kind of like middle, upper, upper class, let's say anxious white people, anxious, good white liberal people, fisherman's hat notwithstanding, <laughs> who are like, it's, it's like this moment where, where the sheer uh, terror that they're concerned, concern, obviously, which they should have, and sort of a certain amount of terror, and uh, that the only kind of humor that's um, acceptable is late night television, you know, the making fun of Trump, which of course there's a golden opportunity um, every day, but it is really kind of narrower lanes of what these things are like, and definitely narrower lanes of what is acceptable humor-wise. So I'm a humorist, and so my last book, The Mad Woman and the Roomba, is this kind of observational humor of our daily lives. And when I grew up, the humor that I followed was Bill Cosby Records, Woody Allen's side effects and without feathers, Fran Lebowitz, you know, it's kind of like, so as far as I know, Fran Lebowitz has not had a Me Too movement, <laughs> but I, I guess that you're still young. Uh, but so now Woody Allen, because I didn't know Woody Allen would, blah, blah, so you're just reading it on the page um, of when, you know, when he's become so fat, he has to butter himself to go through the doors. It's hilarious. Bill Cosby, his stuff on being 50 was observational and hilarious. But now, now it's like even the observational humor that I grew up with, it's kind of like, oh, well, don't, so I think it is. I think it is kind of a weird time for that. Well, and of course, a lot of those people have taken in the public eye certainly a much darker turn in terms of the perception that we have of them, and just pure enjoyment of the culture that's produced by people who are now deemed to be unacceptable in some way. You know, is perhaps no longer as acceptable as it once was, where one is anxious now about consuming joyfully the content of people who one didn't give a second thought to enjoying in the past. Totally. 
And I'm sorry that the Blazing Saddles, which we saw recently, hilarious, of course. And you go, well, oops. First of all, we're all learning something. I certainly am. It's kind of, I, I've been working on, on a stage piece, but it's partly inspired by Wendy Wasserstein, uh, because she was one of the first only playwrights I can think of that would write plays that would star women 50 or older, like the Sisters Rosenzweig. It's like, there's no ingenues, there's no important husband, it just stars these women flat out, and I'm all, I'm very interested in that, since Mad Woman the Vulva was a menopause book, and I think that even though women 45 to 65 are America's largest demographic group, it's like 44 million women, they kind of disappear from, like, J-Lo is 50, she plays 40, and then Jane Fonda is 82, and there's nothing in the middle. Um, but it's true that when I look, so I think that women are their own class, and to a certain extent, this is going a little bit far afield of what you're saying. I've started saying it's the end of women. And I, I want to say, as a side, I had read her work, Bachelor Girls, and I loved her essays. And, and I am noticing they all they do come from a Jewish perspective, and there aren't really people of color in the. And so it is true that when you look back, you you see a worldview that you always took for granted. I always thought I was kind of a Jew living in New York, um, and apparently I'm not. I'm Asian American Lutheran living in Pasadena. But but you see kind of that worldview there and stepping out of it is helpful. I think with the end of women, so it's like nowadays it's 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 like women are over. <laughs> so, you know, let me just take the example of even the term woman in some precepts is considered racist. Right. Well, certainly, and now should be person with the uterus, as I understand First, it. Oh, yes, yes, because apparently the term woman was always secretly, implicitly meaning white woman. So even the word woman you can't use has to be women X with an X in to bring in Latina and trans women. I am woman, hear me roar. It's probably oppressing someone. And in my generation, I'm sort of a young, at the end of the boom, a little too old to be a Gen X. I'm 58. So I went to college in 79. So there, girls were experiencing um, female sexual liberation, which meant that instead of the guy, as I say, inviting you out for dinner, bringing flowers, pulling up in his car, driving you to dinner, paying for the meal, and then taking you home, now you had to go Dutch at the local horrible macrobiotic restaurant. If you didn't put out on the first date, you were frigid. And then in the morning, you had to carry your own diaphragm, those things, because independent women carried their own. In the morning, you would give him 20 bucks because he was starting a band, because in the class thing, he would be one of the ex and he would give you a stack of flyers to put up to promote his band. That's what female libera sexual liberation was. So we, it seemed like my set of women, I call us kind of like second generation feminists or that we have second world problems, which is first world guilt on a third world budget. So we're always apologizing, going to the farmer's market to help the farmers uh, so that McDonald's doesn't win. And then we, uh, you know, and full-time working mothers spend more time with their kids than did 1950 stay-at-home mothers because our kids are all gifted. So we have to drive them to a lot of lessons instead of letting them ride their bikes. We have to lean into our jobs, you know, lean backwards for our marriages and date night and 
take care of our elder parents who will never die and listen, listen, listen all day to our kids. So it's feeling like, wait, when was our moment? And the Hillary Clinton thing is like, wait, that was supposed to be a moment. It's not the moment. And of course, now our kids, if we're at this certain age, are telling us we're using the wrong pronouns, right? And you just can never get it right. And then it changes and then et cetera, et cetera. So there's a kind of woman thing of feeling like, okay, I can't even use the word woman because apparently that's racist to be a woman. I thought we were fighting for a right to be women, our bodies, ourselves, and being these bodies and feel okay. And now I just feel like I have arms. <laughs> it's kind of like, where are we going? Why bother with this anymore? Why don't? Because there's so many young girls um, that are transitioning and taking tea to become boys. It's like, and I've heard that some men, women, aren't my age are doing it. Like, yeah, why don't we just give up? I'm not a woman. I don't want that label. I'm going to take testosterone, enjoy my life, and I don't have to be the mother and the caregiver and the whatever. You don't have to blame me for stuff anymore. And women don't have to take up uh, the causes of all everyone in the tent. And there was um, Linda Hirschman wrote this manifesto called Get, I think, Get to Work or get back to work, get to work, where it's like she made the distinction between what she called um, big-nosed feminists, Bella Abzug and Betty Friedan. She called them big-nosed feminists. Were, they, they had big noses and big hats, and they were loud, and they were for equal pay for women. And then she said Gloria Steinem comes along, and they're the choice feminists, that she's more beautiful and more camera-ready, and where we, because, well, women have to help everybody. Um, the polar bears, otherly abled, every other, like, so that's like, women are the people that unite the world. And that's some, and I think that the point she was making, like, why is it up to women? Why is that our job? <laughs> I guess, like, so, so Matt, it's the, it's the end of woman. Who, who wants to do, who wants this job that we have to care and take care of other people and their mothers, and we're told we can't even use the word woman, and yeah, forget it. In general, and I think this is something that Fussell goes into some in the book, is that your class or your social group comes with a lot of obligations, right? Right. And those go from how you dress to the food you consumed, how much you weigh. Right. And you know there's an allowable amount <laughs> of weight in any social class, right? Who you can interact with and how, and even your beliefs, which I think is something that you are getting into there, what you believe about the world is a function of your social class to pull it out of the politically charged world and just pick a normal example, which is more healing, crystals, homeopathy or hands on you from a preacher, your answer to that question is probably 100% about what class you identify with. Those are constraints on you if you are part or identify or want to identify with a certain social class. And maybe what's new is that the straitjacket that's there, the implied straitjacket of what you're allowed to believe or wear or weigh or whatever within a particular class, certainly ideologically, maybe it's gotten narrower. Yeah. And I think, ironically so, one core here is the notion of education. And I think that that really has changed a lot. So the class consumers of con consuming certain culture or books, et cetera, et cetera. And the underpinning to that is where they're going to go to college. So what's sort of interesting now is how it's so blown out of the water. Let's say the most high class thing would be some compound in the East, some old family money, picture Kennedys on boats of yachts that we can't see that would look like 
people like in a Ralph Lauren ad. Now they might throw in gorgeous people of color. But it was really just kind of like we are calling the Kennedys. And so the Kennedys will, you know, grand, grandfather died, grandmother died, whatever. They'll have their scotch. They'll have their this and that. And, um, and they'll go to the right schools, the certain Ivy Leagues, and then they will run for senator and then become president. And there has been this think tank culture of kids who do go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera, and then go to these cool international think tanks that the schlubby, my community college schlubby kids wouldn't even heard about. And so they, got, they, they do become this intellectual class that's also a political class, that's also a ruling class, also power, banks, Goldman Sachs, et cetera. So, of course, we're in this moment of Trump. So that's one thing, one moment, is that Trump is president, and that whole legacy of people coming out from these important families is now kind of blown to smithereens. Uh, his most vocal followers are the ones that we see most in the media covered, in legacy media, or the MAGA hat people. And, and there could be plenty of Trump voters that are in Florida behind their gated communities. They're not going to be as vocal about it. So the ones we see are the pro, all the, are the Budweiser waving proles. Okay. Uh, and then also children now with college, it's, it's, it's not clear that going to these fabulous colleges are guaranteeing what it used to guarantee before also. So that's been turned upside down. I think that that's a feature and not a bug in some sense. So we're talking about the aspects, the ways in which something, if it's more useless, is higher class <laughs> in certain ways. And I see the kids going to very expensive universities and getting degrees in things that don't really do much of anything in terms of preparing them for the certainly for any world in which they're going to be actively moving around objects and producing widgets, <laughs> let's just say. But these more abstract studies degrees or whatever, those are in some sense very useless. And the ability to send your kid off and pay huge amounts of money for them to get a useless degree has become in some ways, I think, a signifier of being upper class. Yeah. And the moment has passed a little bit where it's five, ten years out. It's not so fun to have them move back home, to have them become baristas. I think that we've seen some of that playing out and law degrees are giving uh, lawyer jobs less. Like, I think I think that we're five to ten years after that moment, because now it's like, oh, my God, it costs so much money. And then there are no jobs. And those jobs in particular are falling out. Um, those culture jobs, just kind of with the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, they are. But, but one thing about college, it's the college application. Now you have a 17-year-old daughter, yes? Correct. So you're, you're, you're in the middle of it, of where when in high school I started looking at this stuff, and, and this is what I talk about in my book, that I, I was so determined not to be a tiger parent. I was a panda parent because my parents were tiger parents, Chinese Germans. Um, and then I realized uh, you should tiger parent them in high school because <laughs> that I, they had previously great grades. They all went to smithereens, a AP classes. They stopped sleeping more than four hours a night. So it's kind of, ah, unless you're grooming your children from grade six on, they have no chance of getting in in Stanford as well. It's kind of like now my, my younger kid is going to Berkeley. So not a, a bright child for sure. But the sports, the thing is kind of like, but my children are so non-athletic. They just, their eyes hurt when they go outside because the sun is too bright. It's kind of like lacrosse. 
this lacrosse like kind of sparkling water. What is it? Uh, and there's no swimming. There's no volleyball. It's kind of, it's, they just did other things. But if you have a sport, I think sports have become the kind of this class signifier of like, if, if kids are playing sports and those will, if they are, if they get the grades and the SATs and they have some fancy sport, well, look at the USC thing and this with the crew team or whatever on the crew of what, as my daughter would say. So sports, I think, is the indicator for the kids. I do see that. And certainly in the book, Fussell talks about among the sports, which ones are the higher class <laughs> ones. This is certainly not anything that anyone would be surprised by. Everyone knows that golf is, at least in terms of social class, above say, football or some other sports, though it's interesting one of the things he talks about, and I think that we have seen this, and this throw things into a bit of turmoil, is that over time, people who are in the lower classes tend to try to work their way up by adopting the habits of those who are in higher classes. And seeing perhaps that golf has become more of a middle-class thing and that other things that used to be exclusive to people who are richer are now much more affordable or they're easier to adopt, that creates a situation where I suppose those who want to maintain their status have to reach for more and more exclusive things, right? Right. I mean, but of course, again, in the Trump era of Trump and his riding around his golf cart, I think those who care desperately about class, are they just have to go into some gyrations to figure out. It's kind of like uh, the Venn diagrams of just like, no, no more golf. And, uh, we got to do something but I think sports obviously are like that. And I think in the pandemic, we would go to our local park and play tennis. We're bad tennis players, but it was just getting out. It's kind of like, please, tennis or pickleball players. I go, I don't know what pickleball is. Um, does that mean I'm a classist, whatever? Because I don't know what pickleball is, but we are playing tennis. So, you know, is, is that a class divider of, you know? Or maybe it just means that you don't live in Florida or not old yet. Oh. <laughs> And I, I think if, if people were updating it today, uh, this book, and that's probably a personal dream of mine. Which which I highly approve of. You mentioned that on another podcast. I say yes. go for okay. it. <laughs> Do the update. Yeah, I would love that. And cruise culture is hilarious because, and I wrote about this also in my book, because we're genteel bohemians, so we're artisanally poor, that we have a building, but beater cars, low insurance, because the cars don't go very fast, et cetera, et cetera. And so we went on sort of a group, a horrible group on inspired carnival cruise. And the carnival cruises are definitely proles in action. And what we see of these proles are everybody has tattoos. And it's not just a biker guy and a whatever the Asian guys have tattoos, white girls have tattoos, every every size, every color has tattoos. The guys are wearing, the dads are wearing their sunglasses back around the back of the head. The children are wearing pool floaties on dry land. 
we're just waiting to get onto the boat. Everybody's like pool floaties. <laughs> and so it was so horrendous. And so we went inside and then the Lido deck, you know, you could eat outside or indoors. Everybody was eating indoors next to the heat lamp so that they could get their French fry tan. We're the only people outside. And then they had this pool, which was supposed to seat it looked like it could only seat eight. It said capacity 13, and I counted 19 people in this fog. Many children whose heads kept disappearing like whack-a-mole. Like, <laughs> and there are signs that said absolutely no diving. And, of course, there was so much diving into this four-foot-tall, mostly by 40-something dads with their man boobs jiggling. And then there were all these games where dads would wear dresses. And, like, it was just, like, really... Saloon, um, and then they had, of course, an art shop that had these garish paintings of like sharks in lipstick playing poker. Is that the uh, new dogs playing poker? <laughs> With a shark, I go. I can't even believe what I'm seeing. This is genius. It's so low class, and even, like it's kind of like that was some low class, and it was cheap, and it was, and you got like forty bucks extra was a fifteen dollar fifteen drink a day, all you can drink, a fifteen limited to fifteen drinks, and of course I remember at lunch it's like I this is my twelfth drink already. Oh my god! It's like <laughs> so that versus the cruise ads that fall out of the New York Times Sunday section where it's all Istanbul and Rome and the couples are all boomers um, with a glass of red wine in like white linen, dry clean only, white <laughs> with a glass of white man. You go, the dry cleaning alone is impressive. It's a cla like class marker that, no, you're going to wear the dry clean linen-y, muslin-y things with the glass of red wine because you can And because you're that rich. Which do you think would be more fun cruise to be on? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they advertise the fun that it, it should be more fun. And, and sometimes karaoke bars, you know, kind of where proles hang out, those can be super fun. But the carnival thing was a little bit too gross. It just It's just kind of, yes, it, it is, it's a little bit too gross. But the other one, you know, I don't know. Wine, and probably wine country is a place to look at all the class anxiety in wine country in Napa. I think that would be a good place to look For at sure. middles. For sure. The trade-off there, the trade-off is you do get better food in the wine country where <laughs> I guess it would be a river cruise perhaps nowadays as higher status than the ocean cruises. I'm not sure, but certainly a smaller ship, maybe with sails, you know, and but not just regular sales, useless ones that are actually not part of the powering it around. So I would say other markers of proles today in my travels, in my many budget travels, is kind of like there's, you know, there's a hotel that's a stay bridge by Marriott. I don't know what I just said. Like, is it a stay? Is it a bridge? Is it a Marriott? Is it whatever? And so they, they so in the breakfast thing, they're trying to, it's so funny because they're trying to, invent it as a cool Silicon Valley hip thing. So they have a films running constantly of these, you know, uh, Gen Xer, not Gen Xers, like 20-something Z Gen in their uh, untuck it shirts, uh, clinking uh, beer, like clinking a pale ale, and then going and shooting some hoops after work in the little Staybridge thing. And then they're on the laptop and it's kind of like, and they're meeting and they're tasting sushi. And, you know, so that's the image of what that's supposed to be. 
But in the morning, you go to the breakfast place, and it's kind of like, and they have those kind of plexiglass dispensers that nobody knows right. how to get the cereal out of it. Instead of those little boxes, especially, okay? so you see these cereal accidents that people are like, what? You have to actually put your bowl under and then like a pet feeder. So you see piles of cereal of people not figuring it out. And I remember on, on the waffle iron, it said, uh, or, or the toaster oven, please don't put hand in toaster oven is hot like who did that and the waffle maker that nobody can understand how to flip it over so there's kind of like waffle it's like a waffle slaughterhouse there and i saw two uh, great things there, if i can remember is a girl in in sunglasses teen girl running on dr pepper and dry shampoo i thought it was good and then her dad in the cargo shorts his t-shirt says this is how it's done That's pretty, this is how it's done. Uh, you know, I'm developing material. Obviously, I think about it constantly. So Excellent. Well, I very much look forward to the book coming out. Sandra, thanks so much for coming on The Filter. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matt. My pleasure. You're, I love your show, and um, everyone should listen. It's fun. Thanks so much. Do you want to send people to your website or social, anything? Sure. Sure. Uh, SandraTsingLow.com is just my website. And I'm also on Face. I think I have a public page on Facebook um, so people can come visit there. Uh, and I, I tweet very rarely and very boringly, but why not? And Instagram, I'm there too. So, But the, my author website is the easiest place to check out what's officially there. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.